0: are listening to Literature Done Juicy, a show that explores books in the juiciest way possible. My name's Jade and on this episode we'll be discussing the novel Boy Parts by Eliza Clark. This is episode 9 of our first season which focuses on dark fiction and we're following on from episode 8 where we discussed three books and they were Honey Bee, Love and Virtue and Paradise and all of these books encapsulated real life issues. I hope you're well and let's get into it. Where to begin with boy parts? The gist of the story is around a female antagonist called Irina. She's a young fetish photographer who goes on the hunt for unconventionally attractive men to then photograph them in explicit poses in her studio garage. She likes to play with the idea of consent and ends up victimizing and objectifying a lot of her muses. Irena lives in Newcastle and she is essentially just a horrible person with little to no redeeming qualities, the type of narrator we love on this show. The dedication at the start of the book sets the tone for the content to be found within and Eliza Clark dedicates the book by stating, For my mother and father, please don't read this. So, Irina has this unhealthy lifestyle and most of her spare time she uses up within clubs and also abuses alcohol and drugs and she likes to play with power dynamics and gets extremely frustrated when the men that she uses and objectifies don't take her seriously or see her as a threat. The book itself has been compared to a female version of American Psycho, which is a novel we discussed in episode four of the podcast, and I can see that there are some similarities, but Boy Parts definitely has its own flair. The first theme that we'll dive into is probably the most obvious one, and that is of violent women. Irene is violent, both sexually, verbally, and physically, and it is a trait that is not often seen in fictional works, specifically female fictional characters. Irina flips a trope of male photographers abusing their power over female models by doing worse to her own victims. In short, she's basically just this sexual sadist and a rapist and murderer. An example of this would be a scene where she actually sticks broken glass into one of the men's eyes that she's photographing. Now, the ending of boy parts is connected to bodily mutilation, so we'll discuss females who participate in that and then we'll have a deeper dive into a prolific Aussie female murderer. So, violence is widely perceived as a gendered concept, basically meaning that people often associate violent behaviours with men, whilst women are seen as a more nurturing figure. Female murderers are actually rarer than males, but they do exist. I did find one study which explored the patterns of female murderers who engaged in post-mortem dismemberment and or mutilation of victims, and this study also contrasted these women with the patterns of the males who display the same behaviours. The study was published in September 2022 in the Journal of Forensic Sciences and even acknowledges that attributes and behavioural patterns of female homicide have been less explored than those of males. And when I say female homicide, I mean female offenders of homicide. The findings in that study were that female murderers who mutilate or dismember their victims know their victims more often than their male counterparts, which is both true and untrue for Irina in the book Boy Parts. It just depended on the victim only 7% of the murders in the female group were driven by sadism compared to 25% of the cases in the male group and this is also tied into boy parts because Irina is actually labeled as a sadist by a lot of book reviewers so it's interesting to see the lower percentage in the comparison of the sexes in this study and then one of the other findings were that males proved far more likely to commit serial dismemberment compared to females so females would kind of just do it once dismember someone once whereas males were more likely to do more than one person. Now, one real-life woman who is probably the devil reincarnate is murderer, and she's been charged, Catherine Knight, and she's actually even featured in that study that I just quoted. So who is Catherine Knight? She is the first woman ever to receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Australia, and she was originally employed as an abattoir worker and was imprisoned for stabbing her partner with a butcher's knife 37 times in February 2000. She then dismembered him, cooked him, and prepared parts of his flesh to serve to his own children before she did this she had a long and disturbing history and it's actually very surprising that she wasn't locked up sooner her childhood was filled with a lot of trauma which is actually quite common for female murderers to experience her father was a violent alcoholic who raped her mother multiple times a day and Knight herself claims that she was sexually assaulted by several family members up until the age of 11 While working in a butcher shop, Knight met a man called David Callet. This man is not the victim that we're about to speak about. And Callet was a raging alcoholic, much like her father, and he was also prone to physical assaults. They married in 1974 and he would often cheat on Knight. And when she eventually found out, she placed their two-month-old baby on the local train tracks before a train was scheduled to pass through. But luckily, for some reason, the train didn't and the baby was not killed. The couple split up in 1986, and then she met a man called David Saunders, who is also not the victim. So during this relationship, she decided to slit the throat of one of his puppies in front of him. But despite this, they stayed together and had a daughter a year later. After the daughter's birth, Saunders left Knight because she had attempted to kill him with a pair of scissors. So yeah, she's got a very colourful past. She's then met a man named John Chillingworth, and that is a very interesting last name, can I just say? And they stayed together for three years and had a son. This relationship ended when she had an affair with a man called John Charles Thomas Price, and he is the victim of her messed up crime. Price had two other children, and they moved in together in 1995. In February 2000, so this is not the actual murder, there was no exact date stated but both Price and Knight had an argument on this night and she tried to stab him in the chest and then he actually went and got an intervention order out against her and this was because he was concerned for his own safety and he actually said to his co-workers if he ever went missing it was because Knight had killed him. I guess, sadly, that he was right. So then later that month on the 29th of February, uh, he has come home from work and he's gone to bed at about 11 p.m. Knight's come home shortly after. come into bed, they've both had sex and then they've both gone to sleep. So then randomly, without any explanation, Knight's then taken a butcher knife from next to her bed and then stabbed Price 37 times. Now, I managed to find the court notes um, surrounding this case and it stated that the wounds were deep and extended into vital organs, including the lungs, liver, stomach, and pancreas. The wounds obviously caused a great amount of blood loss and there were pools of blood scattered around the house and this indicated that he was still alive and attempted to flee from the bed down to the hall to exit the premises. The court notes also state that there was blood marks where he tried to switch on a light in the hallway, as well as blood stains on the knob outside of the front door, which indicated that he did in fact manage to get outside. However, he wasn't out there for very long. There are other blood marks, which are drag marks, that indicate that he was pulled or dragged back inside the property. His death was a result of multiple injuries due to various organs of his body being stabbed and then secondary to multiple stab wounds. Once his body was actually back inside the house, Knight began to skin him. And remember, she worked in an abattoir. So the court notes state that the skinning that was carried out was with considerable expertise and the skin was removed from the entire body in one pelt. After she'd skinned him, she hung the pelt on a meat hook where it remained until it was removed by police when they attended the scene. So after she'd skinned him, she then cuts off his head and arranges his arm so it's draped over an empty soft drink bottle and then crosses his leg. So she actually props the body. Like how Knight has skinned her victim in Boy Parts, Irina makes references to wanting to skin some of the men that she comes across and she also has a episode where she is dismembering someone. So Knight has then cut up the pieces of his buttocks to cook in a dish and she puts in potato, pumpkin, beet, zucchini, cabbage, squash and then gravy and she leaves two plates along with this vindictive note in his handwriting for his two children to come and eat. And then she's also placed his head in a pot to create a stew and when police arrived at the scene the pot was still warm and the head was still inside. She's then led down next to the headless mutilated corpse and then taken a large number of pills and passed out. And then, and then actually his co-workers, because he didn't rock up to work and after his warning were the ones that called police. And then when they arrived, they just saw that, you know, really fucked up scene. So it's probably legit like the most horrendous story you've ever heard. Um, she is locked up now. No chance of parole. She's in New South Wales, never getting out. So that's good. Irina is this abusive, manipulative, psychotic girlfriend that will fuck your life up, but then Knight took that to, like, a whole other level. Another main theme that's within the novel is the issue of consent and an artist's gaze. One of the key elements of Irina's character is her gaze, and this refers to her ability to see the world through the eyes of an artist, so an artistic view, constantly searching for inspiration, for new ideas of work. Irina is always observing and analysing the people and places around her, and she's looking for this perfect subject or scene to capture on film with these men. So what she is analysing are these random average men that she bumps into in her everyday life. Her relentless pursuit of artistic expression often leads her to cross ethical boundaries with these male subjects and she becomes increasingly reckless in her pursuit of the perfect shot. Irina's disregard for consent is a key element of her character and probably what also makes her just a horrible person. As a photographer, she's always looking for subjects to capture and she's not afraid to push boundaries in order to get this perfect shot. And this often leads to her crossing ethical lines and then ignoring the concept of consent altogether. So throughout the story she takes photographs of people without their knowledge or consent and it's often in these compromising and vulnerable positions and she's also willing to manipulate and exploit her subjects in order to get the shot that she wants. Her disregard for consent is not limited to her photography work either. She also engages in sexual relationships with people without their full consent or understanding of her intentions and she uses her charm, manipulation and good looks to get what she wants from people often leaving them feeling used and confused. To say that her work is unethical would be putting it quite lightly, but her raw photographs could be said to have been inspired by artists such as Sally Mann. Sally Mann is an incredibly talented photographer, and she is related to Irina because, like Irina, she is creating her art through a female gaze rather than the typical male one, and her photographs are said to have some sexual undertones and just a very big rawness to them. But she stated that it's more so dependent on the viewer, but as a whole, her works are extremely raw and show this darker kind of side of the everyday person. So Sally Mann is an American photographer and she's known for her evocative and often provocative images of the American South, as well as portraits of her own family. Two of her most controversial works are the photo series At Twelve and then also Immediate Family, which depicts young girls in various states of undress. Immediate Family um, also... So at 12 is a series of black and white portraits of 12-year-old girls, many of whom are shown partially nude. The photos were taken in the late 1970s and early 1980s and were published in book form in 1988. Some critics have accused her of sexualizing her young subjects, while others argue that the photos captures the awkwardness and the vulnerability of adolescence. The images do touch on darker themes such as sexuality, death, injury and loneliness. Within the collection of At Twelve, there is this controversial image and it's an image of a young girl standing next to her mother's boyfriend. The girl appears uncomfortable and reluctant to stand closer to the man. And Sally actually stated that she was struck by the girl's behaviour because she actually explains this in the book. This particular family had actually asked her to photograph them in the first place. And she just found it odd that the girl just was so uncomfortable. Within this photo, the girl's elbow is cropped. And Sally stated that she didn't actually want to crop out the girl's elbow, but she just refused to get closer to this mother's boyfriend. So sadly, several months later, the girl's mother actually shot her boyfriend in the face with a .22 caliber rifle. And in court, the mother testified that while she worked nights at the local truck shop, he was at home partying and harassing her daughter. The girl herself actually told Sally exactly what happened with her mother and the boyfriend and this revelation actually had a profound impact on Sally who now looks back at the photograph and she says that she just has this jaggy chilly realization and it's just this powerful example of how a photograph can capture a moment in time and how that moment can later take on new unexpected meanings. The collection of immediate family was actually published once her children were adults and they gave consent to every single image that made it into the book. So there's been a lot of uh, controversy surrounding the collection of immediate family because they're saying that the children, because they were very young at the time, didn't consent to the photos being taken. However, Sally did actually publish the book and make these pictures available for the public once the children had grown up and consented to the images being involved in the collection. And this type of consent is something that Irina just fails to give any of her subjects. They have no say in the matter of what photos, you know, make it into a collection or not. So one of the most famous images within the immediate family collection is the image titled Candy Cigarette. And I left a link to the image in the show notes for those that are curious as to which specific one I'm talking about. And it's an image that I saw all over Tumblr when I was a young little sad girl. And I swear that I've actually probably reposted this image myself. The image is one of Sally's daughters. She is blonde. She's wearing this white dress and then she's holding a candy cigarette, but it's posed and she's holding it in a way that makes it look like it's a real cigarette. the photo itself has actually become one of sally's most iconic images in part because of the controversy that it generated around it a lot of critics actually stated that she was exploiting her children and promoting underage smoking but others saw this photograph as more of a poignant and evocative portrait of childhood innocence Sally herself defended the photograph, arguing that it captured a moment of playfulness and curiosity between her children. And she also pointed out that back in the day, candy cigarettes were a common treat for kids. I even remember having candy, like it was these chocolate cigarettes and then like there's this white wrapping paper and the white wrapping paper was edible. So I even remember those and I was born in the 90s. So, um, And so she kind of defended the image because back in the day, it wasn't an, a problem. These were just lollies. And there's, there's pretty interesting when there seems with this debate around consent within Sally Mann's work. However, she actually does have consenting subjects, it's just the assumptions of the critics. So, the third theme in Boy Parts is manipulation and a physical harm for art. And Irina is interested in exploring themes of power and control through her provocative and violent photos. Like Marina Abramovic, Irina uses the human body as a means of exploring taboo subjects and pushing the boundaries of what is considered acceptable in art. Now, who is Marina Abramovic? She's a Serbian performance artist who is widely regarded as one of the most important artists in the field of performance art. Throughout her career, she's explored themes of pain, endurance, and the limits of her body within her works. While Irina's work is also about pushing boundaries and exploring taboo subjects, the focus is less on the relationship between the artist and the viewer, and more so on the relationship between the artist and the subject. So specifically we we're exploring one of Abramovic's most well-known and controversial performances and it's titled Rhythm 0. So to test the limits between the to test the limits of the relationship between the performer and the audience, Abramovic developed Rhythm 0, which was a performance where she assigned a passive role to herself and allowed the audience to be the force that would act upon her. She placed 72 objects on a table for the audience to use in any way that they chose. She also had a sign that absolved them of any responsibility for their actions. The objects ranged from a rose to a gun with a single bullet inside, as well as razor blades, flowers, perfume, uh, fork, and just, yeah. A lot of random stuff. Give it a Google. So this performance was to last for six hours and the audience members were allowed to manipulate her bodies and actions without consequence. This performance, this performance tested how vulnerable and aggressive human subjects could be when their actions have no social consequences. First, the audience was extremely passive. However, as the realisation began to set in that there was no limits to their actions, the piece became extremely brutal. By the end of the performance, her body was stripped, attacked, and devalued into an image that Abramovic described as the Madonna, Mother, and Whore. As Abramovic described it later... She states, what I learned was that if you leave it up to the audience, they can kill you. She also stated that she believed the men only sexually assaulted her and did not rape her because their wives were present and it was in a public forum. The audience started to build up what they were doing. They started first just by handing her flowers, but then they actually stripped her of her clothes. They would sexually assault her. They would write on her bodies. One of them cut a slit on her throat and she still has a scar where they sliced her throat to this day. And the performance actually came to a bit of a climax when one of the people got the loaded gun and put her finger around the trigger and then other audience members actually stepped in and pulled that person away and remove the gun We've also included some links to the images of rhythm zero if anyone wants to check them out but it's quite intriguing to see how far people will go when they know that they don't have any consequences for it and that's something that irena definitely exhibits when she's taking these photographs of these men a lot of them they are in these vulnerable positions and a lot of them actually don't know what's about to happen and she takes away i guess their power and their autonomy and does what what. what she wants with them because she knows that no one's really going to find out about it. So other than this very artsy side that we've been looking at, Irina is definitely a party girl and she follows the typical trajectory of young adults in terms of drug use drinking and partying. So within the novel, she actually attends a sesh with a boy called Will and continues to drink excessively and snorts lots of lines of ketamine. This actually causes her to go into a K-hole. And if what I sounded just sounded like gibberish to you, a sesh means a place usually hash you go to after a day or night of drinking to continue drinking and using drugs. And then a K-hole is when you take too much ketamine and uh, your awareness and body control is just done. So when reading this specific scene, it definitely resonated and it was an accurate depiction of what happens at kick-ons after an event in Australia. So there's definitely these parallels between the party's lifestyle in the United Kingdom and then also the party lifestyle currently in Australia. So within the UK and Ireland, a study in 2023 found that there was no strong body of research on prevention, intervention or drug related harm, even though the prevalence of drug use has increased along with the range of substances used and abused and the normalization towards drugs in general. So why are we talking about ketamine? It features a little bit within the novel and is actually a key component of a key scene that occurs between Will and Irina. So if you haven't read the book, go and check it out. It's actually a drug that's making some headlines in the research world at the moment. So what is ketamine? It was originally synthesized in the 1960s and it acts as an alternative to PCP, uh, which the nickname for that is angel dust. And users have often found it produced altered physical, spatial and temporal states. Currently in the medical world, ketamine is essentially just a painkiller. It stops the brain from interpreting pain messages and it's used both within humans and then also within animals. There's actually been a lot of studies with ketamine, and this is from about 2014, and its efficiency in treating depression as well as drug addictions. So researchers have actually supported the use of ketamine for antidepressants. So they've stated prior observations of rapid acute antidepressant effects of IV ketamine in individuals with treatment-resistant depression have actually shown positive results. So although the IV method did not prove to have longer-lasting effects, It did show immediate results when the client was having the IV. So it's also been flagged as a potential good replacement for methadone for the treatment of heroin addiction. So in 2007, a Russian study built on similar research that was carried out in the 1950s and 1960s, which held that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy might be an efficient treatment for alcoholism and addictions, and the effects of psychedelic psychotherapy according to these researchers, are very pronounced within several days or weeks within a treatment session. But once the treatment sessions are done, it quickly declines. And this is inclusive of the drug ketamine. Within the US, they can't be bothered waiting and um, instead of relying on the scientific community nor the pharmaceutical industry to act and do anything in regards to these latest discoveries for ketamine, they've actually begun already establishing clinics over there and people can go get a ketamine IV and charging $3,000 for six infusions of the drug. Also, interestingly enough, the World Health Organization, so the WHO, has recommended against the scheduling and excessive regulation of ketamine on several occasions, 2006, 2012, 2014, and 2015, because when used properly the risk remains minimal. So as one WHO official actually put it, they think that the medical benefits of ketamine far outweigh the potential harm for recreational use. So that's like a big statement. And that's like a few years of an organization just pushing for that change. So the WHO director of essential medicines and health products drew an analogy between ketamine and morphine to explain his organization's position. He stated that placing substances under international control can often limit access to them for medical purposes. Morphine was a case in point. Even though it is inexpensive and one of the best substances available for pain management, in most countries, availability and use are limited due to excessive regulation. And the WHO has actually included ketamine in its list of essential medicines, substances should be available to patients in any healthcare system. So it's kind of flagging the importance of the drug and how really strict regulation might not be the best thing. Here's a more recent study. So in January 2023, the CNS Neuroscience and Therapeutics Journal found that the current state of literature describes the mechanism of action of ketamine as a neuroprotective agent through its action as an NMDA antagonist. This is evidence of its efficiency as a neuroprotective agent in preclinical models of cardiac arrest. Current published clinical works support the use of ketamine and its outcomes for the brain in conditions such as epilepsy, traumatic brain injury, and depression. The current state of the literature is reflective of the notion that the use of ketamine following cardiac arrest may help it improve neurological outcomes. So they're saying once that people suffers a cardiac arrest or they go through a cardiac arrest, pumping them with ketamine actually will help like restore, I don't know the, you know, precise scientific way that it works but it's doing something within the brain to help your brain cells like help prevent your brain cells from dying once you're in a cardiac arrest so if you come out of it if you are resuscitated that you're not like a vegetable so it's kind of funny how like this drug has such like a negative connotation however it could be potentially used for a lot of beneficial things within the medical world There is a problem that's been flagged with the use of ketamine, especially for the use of depression. Some studies have shown that the oral ketamine, so ketamine in oral form, has a low bioavailability because it has this decreased bioavailability. Higher doses will actually be needed, which could increase the risk of the adverse effects because you're just taking more than you really should because your body's not absorbing it. Even that study stated that further studies needed to be conducted to risk and evaluate the cost versus benefit ratio. It's interesting that within the party scene, ketamine is quite easily found and that it's so popular that it even features within fictional novels about young women and their party sessions. So yeah, it's interesting when it's so prominent, but yet has such a high potential to actually being even more useful than it already is. And I think that's all we have time for. I hope you learned something new. So subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. And don't forget to follow our socials. The links are in the description box below and it's for even more refreshing content. The next episode explores various novels that encompass the topic abusive relationships exposed. Stay juicy and I look forward to chatting to you next time. Bye. Thank you.